This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons who faithfully support the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are an extremely small team comprised of just two families with a passion for stories and image bearers. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories and rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value this work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way you can support us is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but it has a big impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen. Today, we are honored to bring you Kyle's story. Kyle will be sharing about his time at a large church near Cleveland, Ohio. He joined the church as an intern and was eager to grow and learn. Kyle desired to use his creativity, thoughtfulness, and intelligence in his job and to serve the church. But over time, Kyle would realize he could not bring his whole self to this job or church. Because when he did, his worth was questioned, and the very way God made him was ridiculed. But Kyle did not let those destructive voices win. And his courage to not give up on himself, God, or the church is a testament to the bold and bright spirit that God has given him. I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Marsville bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. And we are honored to bring Kyle to you today and share his story and hear from Kyle and a little bit about his time at an SBC-affiliated church in Ohio. So Kyle, welcome to the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast, and thank you for sharing your story. I'm honored. Longtime listener, first time uh, caller. Is that what they say? That's great. I'm so pumped. I'm so pumped to have you. I have loved every conversation that we've gotten to have. So I'm very excited to have your story here today. I Yeah, I'm excited to bring it. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. All right. So we're going to start with an easy one. Uh, I want to talk about what actually led you to this particular church. Oh. You know, what led you there? And then what role did you eventually take when you, when you came on board at that church? I was led to this church through one of my professors when I was at a Bible university, that's a whole nother podcast. I could tell you that. But basically the professor that I really loved set up this internship many years before I did it with this church. Like he sat down with um, Pastor R at this church and was like, hey, let's get an internship program going for students to, you know, kind of bridge that gap between you're done at university, let's get you into the into a church, plugging in with places and things. And so that's kind of how I found my way to this internship. A lot of my friends had done it before me. 
and told me it was great. It was a wonderful experience. You know, fun fact is I originally said no, I wasn't going to go do it. And then that professor at school was like, I really think you should do it. I was well into my graduate program. So I'd been at the university for six years. He's like, you need to get out of here. So I was like, all right, fine, I'll do this internship. And uh, I packed my little tiny belongings and moved into this house with this beautiful, wonderful family and did this internship at this church. So that's a long and short of that, how I found my way there. And you were hoping to go into ministry at this point, correct? Is that what you were thinking? Or where, kind of, or were you thinking about another career path? Like what about this internship seemed like a good next step? I was at the time 110,000% like I have an undergraduate degree in Christian ministries with focuses on youth and counseling. I, you know, that winter I was going to be finishing my you know, master's degree in Christian counseling, which I finished. And I was like, I want to take this stuff to a church, use it as a youth pastor to help really bridge the gap between students and their parents is really where I wanted to do. But no. <laughs> so I found, so you're, you know, one, Kyle, you, Kyle gave us an incredible outline of his, I should say it's a heartbreaking outline, but it was a detailed outline of your time there. And it did stretch over multiple years. But one of the things that stood out to me was a statement that you actually said in your outline. You joined this internship. Yeah, you started this internship. You were eager, you were eager to get started. It definitely seemed like you really were looking for to jump right in, be part of the community, get to know the people. And you said from early on, things from your intelligence, level of spirituality, and even your sexuality were on the table. Just walk us through that. That's a lot there. Like, How did that play out in your work relationships? How did that play out in your job? Because that's a, that's a lot. From the get-go, I think I think it was maybe two weeks in, I sat down with assistant L, who was an intern the year before me and stayed on to do a second year and get on staff there. I remember sitting down with her and saying, like, if these conversations about me keep happening, I'm going to leave because it was coming out that moms of the teenagers were were like, how could they let this gay guy in and then a lot of people were throwing out my Facebook posts at me, like he's he doesn't he doesn't read very intelligent, you know. So how could they bring him here? Is he dangerous for our kids? And at the time, I wasn't out yet. I you know I am a gay Christian, and I firmly believe that that is cool and that's something God loves and and wants, you know. But at the time, I wasn't. At the time, I was fully not an affirming believer either. So I was kind of like, okay, well. A, like, I'm single, so how do they know? B, why does it matter? But C, this church is immediately gossing about this. I think I was like 25 at the time, 24, 25, something at the time. This kid that they don't know, they only see Facebook posts. I've been there two weeks, and it was horrible. It was truly, truly horrible. And I remember really fighting back tears daily just wanting to pack up and quit. But there's the, you know, that evangelical part of me that's like, we don't quit. You keep going. <laughs> Pull up your bootstraps, you whiner. Like, oh, gosh. And yeah, it was all just on the table all the time. Can you give an example of a Facebook post that they hated on? 
<laughs> Gosh, I deleted Facebook so long ago. I can't remember. But I know that the movie It like was coming out. So it was like 2017. And I love horror movies. I fully love them. They're my favorite. And I've read Stephen King's magnum opus that is that book. So I just shared the trailer. You know, every kid has seen the trailer for that movie. And I just said, really excited to see this movie. And that was thrown back at me of like, whoa, you can't share that. Children, you know, our children look up to you. And I just remember looking at the mom who was telling me this and being like, then don't take your child to see the movie. Yeah. Like, I'm going to go see this movie. I'm not (laughs) taking your child with me. Like... Okay, so that's kind of helpful, though, for people to understand, Mm -hmm. like, it wasn't like you were even posting these, like, extreme hot takes, it feels like, from what you were, what you explained to me on our phone call, I was like, you're just like living your normal life, Mm -hmm. pretty easygoing. And it was just, when you say everything was on the table, it's like, his very calm self (laughs) was on the table. (laughs) It was, it's very bizarre how heightened it was so quickly to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that there was a special magnifying glass on me specifically. And truly, I I don't know why to this day, I don't care anymore. But I could tell you at the time, I could feel the heat. Yeah, for sure. And and you weren't and you weren't out at the time, so it's not like your sexuality. If your sexuality was on the table, they were making assumptions about you just based on whatever they wanted to, essentially. Yeah, I mean, we'll get to this, but at one point I was doing an interview with a church over Skype and one of the elders on the meeting like started laughing. And I was like, why is he laughing? I thought maybe he heard a, a joke, was looking at his phone, and he stopped and he goes, do you have like a filter on your voice? And I was like, no. And he goes, well, you can't be, that can't be your real speaking voice. I know the types of assumptions, I know myself well enough to know at that point the types of assumptions they were making based off of like the way that I walk and the way that I talk. Assumptions were being made, you know, my entire existence. <laughs> Jonna, what was told to you about your face? Like somebody, somebody had a story where it's like, don't, don't your face, make your face less angry or something like that. <laughs> it was Nicole's story. That's right. Episode five. They yeah. were like, it's, they had something to say about her face. Face, yeah. And I, mm. I mean, that's pretty common. Yeah. But like, I also know, so my husband and I had lots of friends in Los Angeles in the music industry and like there's a large number of straight men that present the same way you present like in this call right now. right it's like yeah kind of wild to me that they didn't get to know you like why i just don't even understand why i learned from kyle and i didn't know this because they don't live in ohio that evidently ohio is maga country big time maga country too pocket yeah yeah Yes. So if you're not in Columbus or Cleveland, even Cleveland can be real dicey sometimes. But Ohio is like the south of the north. (laughs) So maybe that has like something to do with it too, like geography. This just hyper toxic masculine version that every man has to fit Mm -hmm. into. And if you don't fit into that, then you've got to be gay or 
like all of the above they like throw on anybody who doesn't present as like this version and that's really the type of masculinity that that church i was in presented yeah there are men that i served alongside of in the youth who they weren't presenting that way they're not the super ultra masculine like they didn't hunt or anything like that but they were successful but they were like doctors and ran businesses and things like that so that made them real like manly and tough but that toxic masculinity was pouring through through that that church yeah and i think another good thing for listeners to hear is just like you are I mean, this is my assessment based on just the conversation that we've had prior to this. You are a very artistic person. Like even the his initial submission in was like very like Jay mentioned, like what you initially sent to us. I was like, well, this is like a book already. <laughs> like it's like perfectly. <laughs> it was like reading like a screenplay almost how you presented it. So I just think, again, being married to a musician, artistic men don't fit that mold no matter what your Mm -hmm. sexuality is like you don't there's no space for someone that doesn't fit this very yeah specific rigid version of who a man is yeah and that's so heartbreaking and i'm sure you're not out during this time i'm sure you felt that tension yeah i remember going to i was pushed to go to i didn't put this in the script as you call it (laughs) i just remember going to a like men's breakfast kind of thing as an intern being like okay wait maybe i'll put the effort in to like go to something and all the conversations around me were like did you go hunting this weekend are you ready for this you know the big game and i was just like i don't i've never thrown i don't i don't want to be here and just like after 15 minutes just shutting down and leaving like i was like this is not for me (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like that's all really helpful as we move into your story, because I do think Mm -hmm. there's this version of you desiring so deeply to go into ministry and you have the credentials to do it. Like you're working towards this thing and then you're having to grapple with, I don't fit the mold of what Mm -hmm. they say someone in ministry, a man in ministry can be. And so there's this tension in your story that I think people are going to start feeling right off the bat of you either having to completely get rid of yourself and become someone that you're not, or you're going to have to leave. And there's no middle ground. There's no option where like you're seen in your Imago day. And met as like a blessing and a gift of a human to this space. So with that, let's move forward through your story a little bit with that backdrop set. Let's talk about Pastor Jay. So Pastor Jay, was he your considered, I guess, your boss or your direct report or? So it started with both Pastor Jay and Pastor R. So this church I don't know if they still do it this way, but at the time, both the missions and youth department were run out of the same. They were just pushed together. So, but yes, Pastor R was like the main pastor and then Pastor J. But during the summer, the beginning portion of that, Pastor R had to take a step back because his wife got really sick. So he was gone basically the entire internship. But even with my little interactions with him, I still hold that Pastor R is one of the most genuine, loving, caring, actual, beautiful pastors I've ever had the pleasure of talking with. 
But then that left me with Pastor Jay. <laughs> and Pastor Jay, I tried to give him and extend to him grace upon grace upon grace this entire time because he's one pastor trying to run a middle school ministry, a high school ministry, and a missions ministry that was both city, country, and global. So one of the things that stood out to me in your timeline is that it seemed Pastor Jay had a business-minded approach to ministry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that had an impact on you and the other interns. And you saw that played mm -hmm. out specifically when you went to an intern's house on their last day or they were let go? There was an intern that started off, didn't make it very far because they felt he was too immature. I'm like, he, he was a college senior and they felt he was too immature to continue an internship designed for someone his age. So they asked me, and they didn't really ask me, they approached me and told me that I was going to go with Pastor R to the house he was living at and pack up all of his things while he was basically sitting in the church parking lot waiting for his mom to come pick him up. If that was like the first thing that had happened, I would have been like, okay, this is like this, this hurts, but like, you know, like they have their reasons. But it was the second thing out of all of my list of like stuff of like, I've just been gossiped about by the head pastor's wife. She was the one behind all of that stuff with the, all the other moms. And now this stuff's happening. They're, they're asking my friend to leave on no basis, really no basis. They didn't even try to find him new housing or work with him. It was a, mm, you're too young for this. Get out. Kyle, go get his stuff with Pastor R and pack up his clothes, his guitar, his games, his everything. It felt very much so like very cold, holding him at arm's length, like, sorry, you're, you're done here. So how was then Pastor Jay's approach? Because he was kind of business-minded. Like he, he did throw out terms like marketable out there to you and to others. Like how did that impact how he approached and interacted you with you and then the other interns as well? So he almost really didn't interact with me a lot. A lot of it was um, he is a very musical man. So it's funny because he's very toxic. He's a very toxic masculinity man, but he can sing real well and play a couple instruments. <laughs> I will give that to him. Like he is very musically gifted. So when the next intern came in, the third intern, he was very musical, sang beautifully, played great guitar, like was just, and so that right in is like, oh, you have an in with Pastor Jay because you have a marketable skill. Whereas me, I don't have any musical skills. Like I can write poetry real well, but like I don't have something that's marketable for church to use in youth ministry. And so his interactions with me were usually very quick, very curt, and very just like he got to the point and moved on because he had nothing to relate to me with. And in turn, I didn't have anything to relate to him with except like, I want to learn from you because you're a pastor and you've been doing this for a while, but I was never given the opportunity to learn from him. That's like super sad. I, so with your, so you guys all kind of started to do, you're in the youth stuff and you start to kind of work on different mm -hmm. sermon series with the youth. Mm -hmm. And then you start to yeah. cultivate a, a particular like seven, seven, eight week sermon series on gender, sexuality, identity, other things in the LGBTQ community. Yeah. 
that sermon series really came from your youth, correct? Like they were asking for those things? Yeah, they were. So that sermon series came from just the fact that also in the pervading culture at the time was a lot of bathroom jargon of like, who uses what bathroom? Who cares? Go to the bathroom. And I did have students coming to me. They would always come to me and be like, hey, so I have questions, but don't, I don't want it to be a big deal. Like, don't tell my parents or don't like bring it up. It's not a huge deal. And it started with a student coming up to me when I was wearing a shirt that just said feminist on it. Like I had a shirt that just said feminist. And she came up to me and she goes, well, can you tell me how you can be a feminist and a Christian? She goes, because I've been told that a f- a feminism is bad. So that led to that discussion. And then she had more questions. And then all these students kept like on the DL being like, Kyle, we know you're going to tell us like stuff we should probably hear. So then I just approached the pastors, Pastor Jay, and I was like, hey, these students, I didn't say students' names. I was like, here's a list of the questions these students are bringing to me. And I said, this, to me in my brain, should cultivate a sermon series for these students to just get some information. And Pastor Jay was like, sure, fine, whatever. I bought tons of books. And I'll say this before we get into whatever it is about, but like, I don't hold to some of these beliefs like my sermon is still on their youtube page the sermon series is still there if people want to go back and watch it you can i don't hold to those beliefs anymore well you weren't not affirming at that point right right i was not affirming no so you weren't asking to like teach at a non-affirming church affirming curriculum to the youth like you're literally just like hey this is a something that's in culture and kids want to talk about it. So like, let's teach them from a non-affirming viewpoint, how to Mm -hmm. engage culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the first thing I was asked was like, well, what scripture are you going to go to? And my brain at that time was like, well, duh, we're going to go to Romans one. It says it all right there. Duh. (laughs) And, and that's what (laughs) pastor, pastor R was still there at the time. And pastor J were like, Oh, Okay. Like, I saw it in their eyes, like, oh, this kid means business. He's going to yeah. get it. And I was like, cool, great. And then I spent months reading, researching, and, like, gathering other speakers to come and teach other portions of it. Like, I got counselors from the area to come speak on, like, processes in the brain and all these different ideologies and stuff like that. It was going to, like, and that all came to fruition. But a couple weeks before... Not a couple weeks, like maybe like four weeks out, Pastor R came to me and was like, hey, the the big wigs upstairs don't want this to happen. And I was like, what do you mean? We're four weeks out from starting and I've spent months trying to do this. What do you mean it's not going to happen? And he goes, yeah, they're just not comfortable. And they would rather us, this still makes me laugh, they would rather us do the sermon series they're going to do through the book of Jonah about tithing. Now, if either one of you could tell me how the book of Jonah (laughs) relates to tithing, I'd love to hear it. (laughs) would love to hear it. (laughs) Who are the bigwigs, Kyle? Who are the bigwigs? Like, were those like the the elders? Pastor C um, was the head pastor at the time. And it was his wife. Like I said earlier, his wife was the one spreading all the rumors about me early on. So he didn't like it. There was a couple other pastors that weren't great. Fun fact, this church had about like 15 pastors on staff. 
but not one of them a woman. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that was the first time in the internship that I put my foot down. I said, absolutely not. Why do high schoolers need to know about tithing? They don't. And this church is not poor. Uh, they had a rainy day fund of like over a million dollars. Like they're not poor. They don't need tithes. And I just kept putting my foot down to the point where I looked at Pastor R and I was like, I'll leave. Like, if you don't want me to bring me to this, I will go. And he's like, well, let me go upstairs. And he came back like a couple days later and was like, here's the compromise they're willing to have is if the first 10 minutes of each night, Pastor R or Pastor J would give like a 10 minute roundup of what big church is talking about and how high schoolers can give their their money to the church. And I was like, you know what? I was like, fine, that's fine. I really fought hard for that. And I think me fighting for that was also kind of my detriment into the rest of my internship and the rest of my time at this church. Because I showed that I was like, for better or worse, I'm a fighter for what I know is right. Even if it's well, I guess at this point, even if I don't believe it anymore, like at the time I was like, these students need this and they need to hear it and we're gonna speak it. How was that received, that series? I think it, as far as my knowledge goes, it went over well because we invited the parents to come. So every night for those six, seven weeks, we had the downstairs like full of teens and their parents willing to hear awkward things together you know, the last night we had a panel of a couple pastors, a couple counselors, and myself to just answer any lingering questions. In my head, it went great. I thought it was well-received. So after that sermon series, the dynamic kind of changed between you and Pastor Jay, correct? What would you say about that? I think it started to, to change because he saw that I'm not a yes man. I was raised to be a yes man, but I never was. <laughs> and so like during all this time like the other intern the other male intern was going off to lunches with every single person on every pastor on staff and i could not for the life of me get any single pastor to email me back to take me to lunch i even copied and pasted word for word one time the other male intern's email and just swapped my name got nothing back and then i would see pastor jay and everyone else in our little basement wing of this church, like I'd come back from the bathroom and they'd be like gone. I'd be like, oh, well, they're just gone somewhere. And they'd like 45 minutes would go by and they'd come back with like where they went to lunch. And I was like, oh, you guys went to lunch. They're like, yeah, we couldn't find you. And I'm like, well, I had yeah. a phone. And so that's kind of after, after that sermon series, that's kind of how the dynamic started to shift is like everyone else in one corner of the room or at me in a corner of the room, kind of like perks of being the wallflower. Like I'm standing there, like someone drag me to the dance floor because I'm willing to go. I just need help. There was no Emma Watson to come over and grab me and be like, you can dance with us. There was no one to do that. There was absolutely no one. I hate that so much. I saw in your outline, you said that Pastor Jay said you ruffled too many feathers with that sermon series. And it led you to say, I began to think I was broken, that I was not meant to lead or teach and had nothing to offer the church at all. Can you dig into that a little more? And I think this kind of even can go back to 
how we were setting the stage in the beginning, like that tension you're living in where it's like, are you allowed to exist here as you? Or is there something fundamentally wrong with you that keeps you from being able to do the things that you are passionate about? I just think that at that time, I just felt so alone. Looking back and with the help of therapy, it was just like, I was trying to please them. I was not trying to please God. I was not trying to bring glory to God. I was trying to show these people that I can do this. Like, I can be a pastor. Like, I can I can fill a room with teenagers, too. Like, you know, I might not know how to throw up a, a spiral, but I can get those boys to sit down and listen. It was that toxic, just this toxic capitalistic mindset that you have to be a certain way to bring in people so that way they will like pay your salary. It's a weird place to be in a small work environment and just to feel like you're being pushed out. You know, I've been in situations like that before where I feel pushed out and I always go inward and think, what am I doing wrong? How am I failing? Like, good Lord, like I've got to be doing something that they don't want anything to do with me. So I kind of put myself in your spot there to where I would be internalizing all of this and it would be eating me up. Yeah, it 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 was. Almost every moment for a few months of the internship, I was like, what have I done? Because something we, we have you didn't mention yet, but like when I was starting at the internship, first meeting everyone, like it was like I was told that my reputation preceded me. And because I was friends with three of the four interns the year before me, and I knew that they had talked me up. Like one of them I knew specifically talked me up of like, I know him. He's going to be fun. He's funny. Like he's going to be great for this. And so I knew that she had talked me up. I just don't think that I met their expectations of what fun and funny meant. (laughs) So from what I know of you, like you were just so down on yourself and really truly were thinking like went oh, yeah. fully inward. You're really struggling to mm-hmm. to see your worth and your value. It's one thing to have a have it be like a job or a professional relationship, but like it is in a church environment. Yeah. I'll say like I, I've been in many SBC churches and the phrase like come as you are is always meet people where they're at was thrown around all the time. But in my life and experience, they only want you to come as you are if who you are is who they want you to be. They won't put in the work or the effort to help you become the most full version of yourself because more often than not, the most full version of someone else is not who you want them to be. That requires a level of empathy that I just, I have never experienced in an SBC or even Calvinistic evangelical location. I want to go to 2017. You did plan a winter retreat, or you were asked to plan a winter retreat. Mm-hmm. So basically, they every year they kind of throw the planning of the winter retreat to an intern, just whichever one they choose. I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason to it, but it was given to me. So I was, I was really happy. I was excited to do it. I chose the passage, I chose the speaker, I chose the theme. I thought I chose the theme. And I was just really excited for it. I chose the the dance party, planning, all of it. I'm really bad at naming things. Like my dog is lucky she has a name cuz naming stuff is just not my MO. But I, you know, it was based around the vine and the branches and how God, you know, 
prunes those that he loves and he takes care of the vine and how we can be in Christ and all of that sort of that great stuff. I think it's John 17, I want to say. And I wanted to call the weekend the garden and the theming all around of like, how can you be planted in Christ and what does it look like and how can you be watered and be fed as a plant? And sometimes it's painful and it's not going to be fun, but it will ultimately be a beautiful thing. Pastor Jay was like, I am not having a weekend event for teenagers called the garden. And I was like, well, okay, what do you want to call it? And he was like, well, we can't market that. Like we cannot ask parents to pay like a hundred bucks for this weekend if it's called the garden. And he was really upset. And I was like, and the other intern, the other male intern, because it was just the two of us at the time before the next one joined, was like, I don't know, I kind of like the name. But he was not, a, he was a non-confrontational guy to the extreme. So he was like, I like it, but he would just sit in the corner and wait till the confrontation was done. And I remember we sat there for like an hour trying to come up with a name. And I was like, guys, I don't have anything. And he was like, well, why don't you have anything? This is your weekend. And I was like, I have something. You don't like it. So what do you have to bring to the table? Because something he would always say is like, let's be solution focused. Let's not just bring a gripe to the table. Let's bring solutions. And I, that's one thing I learned in this internship that I still kind of like is like, oh, bring a solution if you have a complaint. But we never came up with one. And then it was like the next Monday, because we would always take Friday and Saturday off. So Monday he came in. I want to say it was the following Monday. And was like, I didn't really sleep. This was on my mind all the time. And I, he was just upset. He was just really upset. So he like opens his laptop and he pulls up this PowerPoint slide of happy people smiling with ice cream and a dog in sunglasses and the words, the good life. And he's like, this is what our weekend is going to be called. This is the theme. And I just remember thinking, I didn't push back because I was like, at that point, I knew he was angry and like pissed off at me. So I just let it go. But I remember thinking, what kind of prosperity bullshit is this that we're going to sell? Like, of course, the prosperity is going to make us money. Look at Joel Olstein. Like, <laughs> but it wasn't prosperity gospel. We never, you know, the SBC never teaches prosperity gospel. What what was the reason they had for the not he did he give you any reason other than it not being marketable for not liking the name? I'm trying to find the a delicate word, but it felt very like too effeminate is the way I will describe it is, you know, because you have to market to the boys so they can become yeah. men. Uh that's that's I think that that was honestly the the mindset going into it for him. So did he like change the whole theme of the series, like the sermons, the speaker? What happened with all that? So the speaker we kept, we kept everything else. Everything else was kept except really the overarching theme. So it's kind of like I did all this planning, all these things, planned this really cool party and all of a sudden the theme goes from being planted in Christ and the life of a the life cycle of a flower, really. Like that's where we were gonna go to like, mm, we're gonna call it the good life and how you can have a good life with Christ. I felt like I felt like I was looking at Billy Mays as a pastor. I'm 
consistently impressed with like the depth of the way you view things, but also just as a parent, I have a child that's nine right now. Jay, you have a a teenager, a preteen? Yeah, preteen. Almost teenager. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, I love the way that you, it seems that you expected students to be deep and to like have feelings Mm -hmm. and emotions and deep thoughts and be processing hard things. And I get excited at the idea of other adults viewing my child or my children that way in the future and desiring Mm -hmm. more for them. And it's not just ice cream and puppies. Like, let's talk about what the world is like, what's happening in the world. And let's talk about like where God is at in that and how to reconcile these hard questions. And like, let's wrestle through this together. And it's just sad that that was not championed in you to me. And what's funny is that church prized it, that youth group, those leaders, like they prided themselves on like, we are always going to talk about the hard stuff in life. But when I did a sermon for middle schoolers, um, this was when Charlottesville happened was when I was an intern. I did a sermon on the Good Samaritan and how the Good Samaritan was about race. Like at its core, like there's a story about race there. And parents were up in arms at me about it because I was teaching sixth, seventh, and eighth graders about race. And it, what's funny is that like I, <laughs> it's funny because I don't really like kids, but I do like, I speak to children the way that I would speak to anyone else. Because it's so true that kids know when you're bullshitting them. Every kid knows it. And so stop trying to, to, to do that to them and just let them know what the world really is. Because if we don't, they won't know how to navigate it. And my fear is that there's just so many churches and youth groups out there that are not telling their kids the truth. And they're just sending people into the world who who claim the name of Christ, but don't know how to navigate it on a deep level because the world is gray, but the SBC and Acts 29 and all of these mega conglomerates want us to see the world as black and white as it's either covered in Christ's blood or it's not. And that's that's not how God operates. That's not how Christ operates. I just wish for so much better and Me so too. much more. So I did want to say, so after that meeting, you you like apologized to Pastor Jay, which is so sad. Yeah. And you, you even were angry yeah. at yourself because you didn't feel like you were savvy enough to be a pastor. So talk to us about that a little bit. I did apologize to Pastor Jay. I think I said something to him along the lines of like, I'm sorry, I was, I wasted your time. I remember that night going home and journaling and I don't journal like a normal average journaler. Um, I just write poetry about how I feel and what's caused that. And I remember, I think I sent it to you. I think it's in there it's beautiful. So you wrote this. That makes more sense now. So you wrote this after you apologized to Pastor Jay. So you wrote, this is what Kyle wrote. It goes, I am bone dry. I am bone dry at the bottom of the sea. Here with all these people, and yet none can see. I am bone dry, but it is just business, repentance, and forgiveness. 
teach me to walk in the marketplace and lavish grace upon my grave. Yeah, so that is like, I remember just feeling like I had said that before, like I'm just Charlie in Perks Being a Wallflower, just up against the wall watching everyone dance and there's no there's no one there to come pull me off the wall, but they all see me. But I feel as if it's my fault that I'm not getting any help, even though they all see it. And it's just like, I don't know. I'm not a business person. I don't want to sell anyone a product. And I just kept being surrounded by all of these people and being led by this pastor who only saw Christ as a product. And I thought that that's what I needed to become. I was like, if I want to make it in this business of being a pastor in America, I need to see Christ as a product. I wanted that. At that time, I can look at you guys honestly and be like, I wanted that. If that's what it meant to reach my goal of being a youth pastor and and helping children connect with their parents, I'll do it. Ugh, it's gross. The first time you read me that, I think we talked a little bit about that teach me to walk in the marketplace and how that was just like it. Yeah. That first initial call we had, you were like pretty broken up about that. Like I was praying to be a better businessman <laughs> because I just <laughs> thought that was it. Like that's what I have to be. And that's what's so mm-hmm. insidious about this church model. You're literally thinking God wants us to be businessmen, not shepherds. And like yeah. a shepherding heart yeah. is literally anti-Christ when that gets swapped. Because no, they would never say that. But, but they would never say that. Is not efficient. Yeah. And it's not easy or successful or marketable. Being mm-hmm. being a shepherd is not a marketable thing. It is smelly and dirty and gross yeah. profession. And you know, you're like helping sheep give birth and fixing broken legs and chasing them all around the field because they are Mm -hmm. wild and could go any direction at any moment, (laughs) you know, like they're (laughs) hopping the fence and you're having to save them from getting hit by cars or eaten by predators. It just, it breaks my heart to see through the progression of this internship, all of the good shepherding qualities inside of you that God created in you just get turned into something's wrong with you. It's almost like you're a mistake for having those desires or for viewing ministry Mm -hmm. in a healthy way. Like you're, you're literally, we're watching in poetry form, you turn against the parts of you that are like so beautiful and God honoring and amazing for like suited for what you wanted to do. And we get to watch it get twisted and that's not God. And it's sad. 
hearing you now and knowing like you're self-aware now to see how broken that was Mm -hmm. and it just sucks and like we i think we all just kind of have to sit with that like yeah we all know in this space and listeners probably too are like what the hell like (laughs) you're like literally praying to be better in the marketplace (laughs) and but at the time like you're not alone in that thought I know for a fact that there are so many, and it's probably mostly dudes because women can't be doing this at all, (laughs) but you know, like they're sitting there like, (laughs) gosh, if only I was more of an Enneagram three, that I could actually be successful pastor and maybe someone would actually be saved and come to the kingdom Mm -hmm. and I could grow a big church and have a successful ministry. And it's so, I mean, it's one of the root causes of why this podcast even has to exist. Because once you get there, then people are transactions Mm -hmm. and we're not shepherding anymore. It's so Mm -hmm. heartbreaking. And what's so key, a successful ministry truly is not flashy, but you'll never find a male in the SBC Acts 29 world that isn't flashy with their successful ministry. You're not going to see that because for them to really be successful means they can't have the spotlight and power. It's so gross. So leading up to your last day, you're, you're sitting in all of this. When was your technical, I guess, what, what was your last day of the internship? It was in May of 2018. Okay. So you'd spent a year there. And okay, so there was a tradition that all interns went through on their last day at this church. Kind of talk to us about that. What was that day like? And what's that tradition? Leading up to May, so like January to May, we had another intern join and love her to death, still love her to this day. But it was during that time, like the the winter retreat that I planned goes off without a hitch. Even though it downpoured and a girl's cabin was flooding, I managed to navigate and Pastor Jay was like, this went off. This was really good. You did a good job. I was like, oh, I remember thinking, oh, I'm, I'm in. I made it to the inner circle. I did a good job. No, I did not. Basically from February to May, I spent in a different room in the church because there no one was giving me work to do. They were having basically meetings without me. So I would just go to another room in the church and read a book the entire day or or watch Netflix because no one was giving me work to do. Or, or, you know, I would plan for the small group that I was leading with a couple other leaders because every intern was placed in a small group. So I'd do all those other things because they just weren't giving me work. And so I just, that's when I felt the most outcast during the internship. My most, most outcast is yet to come. But I just remember just like sitting there like, why am I here? I'm wasting my life and my time. So then we get to May and it's the last day and everyone writes letters to the interns to vision cast is what the term that they would use. And we, everyone other, all the other ones, they're beautiful, lovely. You know, they have a few things like, oh, you could work on this. That would be great if you would, you know, work on this. And before we even started the day, Pastor Jay said to me, it was really hard for us to find an activity you wouldn't make fun of for all of us to do together. And I have to admit in, in that he was right a little bit because 
During this internship and my time at this church, I was the most depressed and cynical I've ever been in my entire life. Like, I had no hope in me for anything, ever at all. Like, I felt like I was just, like, sucking out the life of everything because my life was sucked out. So why not be cynical about it? Because there's no hope in Christ anymore. Like, that's truly how I felt. And so then they get to, through everyone else's beautiful letters, and then they get to mine. And my letters were full of just things to work on. Nothing that I was ever good at. Nothing they ever saw for my future. And Pastor Jay's said, you did a really good job with those three boys as that like little huddle that I would, that discipleship huddle. But he, but the main point he made was that he didn't like me and he only loved me because Jesus said to, because the Bible tells us to love. And I was so defeated, but that was like the middle of the day. We still had a full day and activities to do. And I had to sit there. And they read these out loud, right? Yes. They read them out loud in front of everyone. So every person, all the, the other interns, they all heard this happening. And it was like, boom, boom, boom. Letters being read over you. Words being spoken over you. This is supposed to be things for we're sending you out. And what they're sending you out with is I don't like you, but I have yeah. to love you. Not like it's a pleasure right. to love you or an honor to love you. It's I have to love you. And I had to sit there and take it. Like you can't speak while other people are reading the letters. You just you sit there and you take it. Did anybody in the room like have an emotional reaction to that? No, <laughs> no. Like that's crazy. It's it's common in in in. SBC Acts 29 men that they've never been told no by a person. No one's ever stood up to them. They're just, they're just bullies. What do you do the rest of the day? I would just want to leave. But I just had to showboat because my whole day was preceded with, we had to choose something you wouldn't make fun of. And so I felt like I couldn't sit in the things they were telling me because I would have brought down the energy because they were being assholes to me. And I didn't, again, I was still so stuck in this, like, I have to please these people. I have to please these people that I, that I faked it. I just faked it. So I take that summer, I, I start a job at, at Starbucks because it's the only job I could find right then and there. And it was kind of fun. I was working with a, another friend, two other friends from the church and it was, it was a good time, but I start shooting resumes to the wall, like shotgunning spaghetti and seeing what happens. That fall, I went on a mission trip with through the church on like a medical mission with the leaders I had been serving with in that small group that entire year. Like they became good friends to me. Like they taught me to play Dungeons and Dragons. Like we would hang out. They, they taught me about beer and wine and like I felt like they were a safe space to like really let loose and be at ease and like they liked the way that I talked to students like and all these things so I went on this medical trip with them and I got really sick on the plane right there I just I don't know what happened to me like looking back and seeing what the world has gone through I fully think I got COVID before it was cool. 
Not that it was ever cool, but like y'all know what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like you got it before people were saying I got COVID. Right. Because I had all this, the symptoms of COVID, really. And so we land in the country where we were going and I was still sick. Like I just don't know. I was trying really hard to get better. And the leader of the trip who I'd been serving with for a year, he's a lay leader, sat me down on a bench and was like, Pastor Jay was right. And I was like, what do you, I said, what do you mean? He goes, you can be really disappointing. We were in this busy, crowded airport, but I felt like I heard the world, like my world stop. Like the gears of the universe were just like, something's not right anymore. But I go the rest of the trip. I get sick on and off to the point where the last day of the trip, I ask them for medicine again because they're doctors and pharmacists and I need medicine that they have. And he gives me some. He goes, I never want to hear you complain about anything in your life ever again. And I was like, bro, like I could hardly stand some days. I like my skin felt like it was on fire. Like, but I served all 10 days trying to my my darndest to never once complain. Had you guys talked about Pastor Jay in the past, like you and this couple and your experience? I never. So this is out of nowhere. Like you had no idea he had talked to them about you. You think they're safe friends. But yet now you're like, wait, what have you believed about me this whole time? Mm -hmm. Which is so gross on so many levels. Yeah. That trip ends. And then I just keep I just keep serving full time. Like I'm working at Starbucks like 50 hours a week, but I'm also a middle school leader, a high school leader, and like have that group of three that I still keep meeting with. Do you keep going to like hang out with those friends anymore? Or is that done? Yeah, no, I, I still like play Dungeons and Dragons with them during this whole time. Like they treated me like as if that was the past. We can move forward. We're off the trip. Like I felt like whiplash was happening. Like, okay, you were really just pissed off at me for like a solid month after like you were still mad at me but now it's okay like but you never apologized but that was still in me of like just put your head down and be grateful that you know people are around you I was like okay like I said I was serving high school middle school full-time like I was there Sunday all day (laughs) and still serving in as a as a life group leader like doing everything possible while still throwing spaghetti at the wall to get a ministry job so then the next may comes around like we go i go through an entire another year with them and i go on another trip raise the money and i go and i have a bad day on this trip just one bad day and i wasn't sick i was just like misled because i was told something was going to happen we were going to go to this place and we didn't And I like psyched myself up to like share the gospel with people in this country and it never happened. So I was let down. So I just got really sleepy. And so I took a nap in the van on the way to our next thing. And that was held against me because when we got back to the States, the leader of that trip, who was like the assistant to the missions department. So she's been there this whole time in the background of my entire story, told Pastor R that I made the entire trip about myself that, you know, like I threw fits constantly that, you know, while, while he asked good questions of people and was really good conversation, really good at what we were supposed to be doing there. The rest of the time I wasn't very 
a good team member. And it was just awful. But I stay and I serve. And I and I continue to serve at the same level of like sprinting basically every week for this church occasionally being allowed to speak because you know pastor was pastor jay was overloaded so hey you, you you're a good speaker you can at least keep their attention during all that time i am taking interviews skype calls phone calls driving you know 45 minutes an hour to other local churches and i got really really close this one church in arizona that was the same church where I was in the Skype call, the elders laughing. Is there a filter on your voice? It was that church. And the youth pastor that I was going to be taking over for, because it's very classic, guy goes into youth pastoral position for two years, now he's the head pastor type, type deal. But he was really cool. And he called me after I hung up that Skype call, because I was like, I'm not dealing with this today. And he apologized, and we were talking, and then he goes, hey, um, I got your references, and just so you know, like, Pastor Jay basically says that you're, like, unstable and that you're not a good fit. You you don't know how to sell sell stuff. Like, like, he doesn't see that you have anything in you to lead well. And he told me this, and he was like, I don't see any of that. But that's when I st- stopped. I was like, I'm done. I'm not going to try to be a pastor anymore because the the men I put down as my references, who I were the only ones I really could, because Pastor R didn't watch me serve because he was, you know, being a great husband to his wife and father to his kids. He wouldn't have done that to me. So I used Pastor Jay and the leader, male leader I'd been serving alongside of, were basically like stabbing me in the back the entire, entire time. Oh my gosh. And you had no idea these were your references. So like No idea oh lord that's so heartbreaking so are you still at the church when he told you that mm-hmm. uh, and so what'd you do stayed serving i loved the kids that i was serving so much and i don't really even like kids that much <laughs> but i was like these yeah. kids need someone who's gonna tell them the truth and actually care enough to take time out of their day to go see them. Did any of those people interviewing you that passed on, did any of them give, besides that one church, did anybody give you any feedback at all? I was ghosted so hard by everyone. But I'm the type of person that if I get a rejection letter or rejection call, I will always ask and say, what was it about me that made you turn me down? Is it something that I can work on? Or is it something that I'm just not a good fit? Like, if it's a if it's a personality thing that we're like, you already know, I'm gonna clash, cool, I can accept that. But if it's something like I can change and work on, tell me. Because wouldn't you want someone young and single to be in the ministry? No, they don't. They want they Literally, I remember churches, so many would ask me, like, well, when do you plan on having a wife? And, and alar- alarm bells of, like, they want a free worker out of you. They're not going to have that. When was that? That was 2019. 2019. Yeah. Okay. Because then my my personal world that summer shifted where something 
terrible happened to me and I kept it to myself for a long time. Uh, three weeks, but it felt like a, an eternity. And this is where Voldemort comes into play, into the story. So this terrible, gross thing happens to me, and I keep it to myself. And he and I had become good friends during my in, like end of my internship and that year in between all this stuff. He and I become really good friends, even though we were polar opposites. So we were on a walk one day and with his dogs, and I tell him what happened to me because he stops and he's like you're not all right like something's off here and so i just tell him and he just goes oh the world's a terrible place isn't it and like even looking back even to this day i i can respect that response because a it's not something you want to hear or will hear every day and it's not something usually a guy is saying not owning up to but vocalizing and so i can respect that response you know like you do the best with what you have at the time so then he tells me that i need to tell pastor r and he's he's right i should have and so i did and pastor r introduces me to pastor d who is the head of like counseling and all that stuff at the church and so they help me find therapy the one great thing that this church did for me ends up being its downfall in my eyes. <laughs> so I start going to this therapist, or this Christian therapist at, a, at another local church. Great. Love that man. I need to go back to him. <laughs> Early on in my therapy with him, he said, honestly, Kyle, if I had a dollar for every single person that church sent my way for the harm that they've done to them and they didn't know it, he goes, it wouldn't be a million dollars but I could go get Starbucks for a while. <laughs> Which is like a sad reality of that church that they were sending people to therapy for the things that they'd done to them. So as I'm starting therapy, I also tell Pastor Jay because I'm, I just unplug. Every ministry I'm doing, I'm like, done. I'm like, I'm taking, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm taking two months for me. And Pastor Jay was like, do you want me to tell the other leaders? And I was like, you know, he goes, we don't have to tell them what happened or what it is, just that you're taking time out. And I was like, no, like, I don't want that. I don't, we don't need to do that. So he's like, okay, we, I won't do that. But he sends out a weekly email to all the leaders. And lo and behold, at the bottom of the email is a sentence of like, and guys, just to draw it to your attention, Kyle is taking time away for himself because his life isn't going the way he planned. A, I told you not to say anything. B, that's, that is not why I'm taking time away. I was pissed. I was so, so mad. But I never said anything to him about it. And so I am going to therapy. The church paid for the first 10 sessions. And then after those were up, my therapist was like, I, you're not ready to not see me. And so he's like $10 a session. So he's a great man. <laughs> and so I go to then the next big youth event, which was this weekend retreat in the fall. My therapist even told me, he's like, you're not ready. But I went anyway, because I was like, I miss my students. I miss hanging out with them. I miss talking with them. I, and, I, and I convinced myself it'd be a good choice. Not a good choice for me to do that. Um, listen to your therapist, people. If they tell you you're not ready for something, you're not. 
And I have a master's degree in counseling and psychology, and I just ignored his advice there. Yeah. Okay. You're also straight up in trauma response. Yes. Hardcore. Moment to moment. Hardcore. During this season. So there's a lot of grace for you just making wild decisions for yourself, right? Like I was learning this week about, and you would be able to talk about this much better than me, about how... When you're in fight or flight in a trauma response, like you're, you don't have that blood in the front of your brain that actually helps you make good decisions for yourself. You're just responding. The body keeps the score. That book became my Bible for a while. I was like yeah. pouring into that. So I, I ended up going to the fall retreat and I had a panic attack, but I caught myself early on because we were in the big cabin with like innate cabins, like huge lodges that we were in with all the students. They split you up by small group and then by like the guys in this small group or in this cabin, whatever. So I tell the leader that I'm serving with that I went on the trip who told me I was a disappointment. I tell him, I'm like, hey, literally in five minutes, I'm about to have a panic attack. I'm going to go back to the cabin. I need 20 minutes. And he was like, fine. And so, like, I get in my car, I drive down the road, I go back to the cabin, have my meltdown, and, like, cry and pray and, like, scream into a pillow. And then I hear all the students that were in my group come back in. They're having a great time. And I'm like, I remember literally going into the bathroom that was attached to my room, locking the door so the students couldn't get in from their side, looking in the mirror and just going, like, clearing my face, like, with my hand, like, like a theater actor would do and being like, end scene. Like literally it was like, and you're done. Like you cannot be this way anymore. And I remember telling myself, you can't be a disappointment here. Uh, Yeah. And so like, I wasn't a disappointment the rest of that night because that same leader thanked me for stepping up and saying stuff that the students needed to hear. And I was like, but I was again, this emotional whiplash with these people of like, am I a terrible disappointment or am I doing the right thing? It could never be one or the other, but it also wasn't both at the same time. Like, I never understood. So then I end up moving into a house with another friend from the church who I worked with at Starbucks and Baltimore. And right when we moved in, the world shut down. I'm still having panic attacks. I'm still having nightmares. Parts of my body were going numb. You're in a full PTSD. Like, full on. Yeah, you know, and Starbucks shuts down. They're like, Starbucks was, at the time, great. They're not anymore. They, like, said everyone gets paid for a full month. Like, what you normally worked is what you'll be getting paid. Like, don't be here. And so, like, I'm at home just, like, watching, literally just watching Survivor and trying to hold my body together. And Voldemort was a nurse. And so, like, me and the other roommate were trying to give him space and grace to exist because, like, no one who wasn't a healthcare worker at that time could ever understand what it's like to be a healthcare worker at that time. Like, even to this day, I can extend him grace to an extent in that. But he started gaslighting me and the other roommate. Like, he had me convinced that I was an alcoholic. Like, I know I'm a lightweight. I am, like, the lightweight champion of the world. Like, I'm, like, a two white claws. This guy's done for the night. Like, I am, I am <laughs> tapping out, guys. Yeah. But he would come up with all these stories and corner me, like, literally corner me in the house 
and tell me these things that I did while I was drunk. And I'm so in this PTSD mindset of like, I must have done these things. I And I would apologize and be like, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, and, and there was a moment where he was off and I'm at home because I can't go anywhere. I started having a panic attack in the house and he grabs my wrist, like just grabs me. And he knew not to do that, but did anyway. And was like dragging me outside into the yard. And he goes, you're not allowed back in the house until you tell me what's going on. Like explain to me what's going on inside you right now. And I'm like struggling to breathe. And I'm like, so I like do my best to try and please him to tell him what's going on. And he finally is like, okay, fine. Like, let's go inside. This was like multiple times, like throughout like that March to we eventually he moves out in that October. But that summer, he really loved the idea of having a garden. And at first I was like, yeah, like a COVID garden, like that could be fun. And then I started looking at all the, how much work a garden is. And I was like, you know what? I can buy groceries at Aldi. It's fine. I don't need, (laughs) if, if y'all want a garden, you do it. And so the one day his like mom shows up to like help him with stuff. And I wasn't doing anything. Like by that time, Starbucks had opened back up. Like I could go to work and things, but I had the day off and I was like, I could go help him in the garden. Like not a big deal. Like I'm not doing anything important. And so I go to help him in the garden and he's like, I'm digging a hole for a tomato plant, put it in. And he goes, oh, you need more dirt in that hole. And I was like, oh, okay. But he had a bucket of like fresh mulch or something. And he wanted me to use that instead of the dirt in the ground. And so I put more dirt in it, patted the plant down. He goes, did you put more dirt in there? And I go, yeah. And he goes, fucking liar. And I was like, what? What? And he goes, you heard me. And I just calmly took off the gardening gloves, set them down, and went inside. What precedes that is he shows up in my doorway in my room. And he goes, you need to give me the names and numbers of all the people you trust. Because I'm going to call them every day until you're right with God. And I said, no. (laughs) Thank you. You did it. You said no. At first. Because he just kept berating me over and over again with like, I'm not a Christian. How I'm acting is not okay. And I'm like, well, A, first of all, yeah, I know because like I'm in therapy. Like you should be, dude. Like I did tell him multiple times to go see a therapist. What he says next, like really hurt. And it like, (sighs) because he said that he had talked to Pastor Jay and I had told a, a few leaders really what happened to me and like why I was really taking time away. And he said that he talked to all of them and they find it hard to believe me. Like they, they didn't believe me that anything was really wrong. Like I was just too stunned to, to speak. And he go, and I remember him being like, yeah, we don't believe you. And it's just, it's really messed up. And he just like walked away. I never confronted him about it. I never confronted anyone about it because it kind of made sense. Because during all of that time, all the, like, I think it was like eight people I told, eight or nine people, not one soul ever called me or ever texted me, ever showed up to ask me how I was doing. 
And this was a church that was like, they would all show up for each other. They would. They'd post it on their Instagrams, their Facebooks, their Twitters, whatever, that they were at their friend's house, like checking in on each other and always posting about how beautiful it is to be a part of the body of Christ. But meanwhile, someone who's been serving, like tooth and nail clawing for these students, is down and out in a huge fucking way. Sorry. And not one of them could spare 10 seconds to just fucking text me. But what they could spare was time to talk about me behind my back and say that it's not true. There's no way it could be true. And it was in that moment when he told me that, that like, I was like, I am done. They don't get any more of me. But I still kept going to a young adult group because it was like people my age and we were learning the Bible together. And I was like, okay, this is cool. But he came to that same group because there's only one. <laughs> and so I remember getting a phone call from the leader of that group, Leader K. And he says that I need to come meet him and Pastor D at church because my relationship with Voldemort was too tumultuous and it was causing too much tension in the group. And I was like, okay, like we can sit down. And I was ready. Like we can sit down and we can hash this out. Like I was like, you know, we are brothers in Christ. We can get through this. Like, because in my head, I'm still reaching out to him of like, you are a nurse. This is a global pandemic. Like there are things you're not talking about that you need to get through, but you are taking it out on me. I was ready to say all these things to him. But I walk in the room and it's just Pastor D and Leader K. I proceed to be the one that is told that I'm wrong for the way that I'm treating Voldemort and that they want to have another meeting with him and I together. And I was like, this was towards the end of that like hour, hour and a half long meeting with these two. And I said, no, I don't feel safe doing that. And they said, well, bring your, bring your therapist, bring your counselor. And I said, no. And I looked at Pastor D and I said, you are a counselor. You know, ethically, he can't say anything. And he goes, this, what he said, really, it still fires me up because it's so wrong. Pastor D looks at me and he says, well, we paid for those first 10 sessions. So we have a right to know what was said in them. I, (laughs) I nearly, like, I'm not an angry person by nature, like, If I'm upset with someone, I'm the disappointed kind of person. Like, I'm not going to yell at you because that's a lot of energy I don't want to expend. But I felt like I could flip this table to Mars. I was so mad. Well, you were educated in this. Yeah. Like, you've been taught these things. You know how wild what he just said to you is. Like, the same amount of education he has, I have. Right. And what's even wilder to, like, zoom out? For one second from Kyle's story, there's a lot of people that don't have your education that have probably been told this same thing and don't know that that's a boundary that they're allowed to have. Yeah. Like, what? If you're listening and you don't know, no one legally, well, legally, someone could ask your therapist, what do you guys talk about? Legally and ethically, your therapist, your counselor can't tell anyone not a pastor, your spouse, your child, your best friend, your dog, like cannot say a word 
unless you're going to harm yourself or someone else. And I was nowhere near doing that. So if you're listening to this and your pastor has asked your therapist questions, leave that church right now. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Double amen. So, yeah. But one good thing that came out of the meeting was Leader K said to me, we've spoken with Voldemort and you seem more willing to actually learn something from this than he is. And I took that with a grain of salt because anything someone on that church said to me positively, I thought was like, didn't matter. Probably not good. (laughs) Probably, you know, yeah. So then my therapist tells me, so we fast forward to September 2020 and my therapist is like, or August 2020, your therapist is like, hey, you need a dog. You just need a dog. It's going to be great for you. And I was like, I would like a dog someday, but maybe not now. (laughs) He's like, no, like I'm going to prescribe you a dog. So I asked my roommates, Voldemort and the other one, I was like, is this okay? Will you guys be okay if I have a dog? Because I wanted their permission, you know, to be okay with it. And they were like, yeah, that'd be great. So I get a dog and I set some boundaries with them and the dog. I said, we didn't have a fenced in yard. We lived on a busy road. I said, if I'm not home and you want to take the dog out, put her on a leash. One roommate, great. Voldemort, I repeatedly would come home to him just out in the yard with her, her running. She's like a 10-week-old puppy running towards the street because she's a dog. She doesn't know any better. And I'm like instantly panicking, crying, freaking out. And he would say things to me like, well, she's just a dog. I would say like, she's my dog. And I set rules and boundaries and, and you're breaking them. She's also not even just your dog. She was prescribed to you by your therapist because mm-hmm. you were in such a tumultuous time emotionally yeah. that it's literally a prescription. Like yeah. She's you're like supporting you emotionally mm-hmm. through a season where all of the people that should have been supporting you are saying I don't even believe you. Yeah. And you're making this up. So yeah. I think that it could sound like dramatic, like, oh, the roommate just got mad that the dog got let out differently. No, we need to put this into perspective of, mm-hmm. I mean, f- one, it's fine. It's your dog. Don't let the dog out if you're not going to listen to the owner. But the next layer of that is it's not just a dog. There's a lot more going on here. Yeah. I would like brush that off. Like she's still alive. She's still safe to this day. I love her dearly. Um, more than dearly sometimes. Um, what's her name is her it name is, no <laughs> that would have been great uh her name is buffy terrible uh, name what are you thinking <laughs> i'm just kidding that's awesome okay she's she slays my emotional vampires is what i say okay you're a great namer we're reading that in you <laughs> thanks i appreciate that but then other rules i had were just please don't feed her like people food i don't you know Like, that can be an expensive thing if she gets in the habit of that. So I would come home from work, like, let her out and play with her. And then I discovered that Voldemort was giving her people food on the side. And, like, that's not the worst thing you can do. I was upset. I did ask him again. I was like, please do not do that. And then I found him one day, like, kicking her. And that's when I went, not ballistic, but I grabbed her and I said, you're not allowed to be alone with her. And I got a friend was going through her own stuff at the time who would come over when I was at work and like take her out and check on her and all these things. So it was great so that my dog was never really alone with him. Then 
it came to a head at that point when I asked the other roommate and I said, we need to sit down and ask him to leave. Like we need to ask him to get out of this house. And he was like, I agree. And so we sat down. I wish I still had it recorded because I've recorded the whole conversation for safety. Cause I was, I was scared of this man. Yeah. And so we sit down and we ask him to leave we give him a whole entire month. Like, we're not just saying you need to get out this weekend. We're like, we give him a month. And he says, you guys need me to leave. You want me to leave. He's, the, again, he's very much like Pastor Jay in that they do share a name, but they've also never been told no their entire life. They have never had someone look at them and say, this is my boundary. You have broken that. And during my time knowing him, he had three failed relationships with different girls, and he would list out why they were not spiritually mature enough to be with him. But that's what he's been taught his whole life. You and your roommate are being gaslit by him constantly. Mm -hmm. You're being treated poorly. Can you elaborate some of that? Like, were you actually getting drunk or was he just making that up? Making it up. So you're like making it up, questioning your reality enough to like, do yes. I not remember drinking? Yes. Yeah. And on top of that, again, you're in PTSD trauma spiral. So you're like, am I like just straight up blanking out periods of my life? Right. And you're believing him and you had a relationship prior to this. Yeah. Why would he lie about this? What's Why happening? would he lie? Right. And I had gone to Pastor Jay because I didn't know what to do at the time before we even asked him to move out. And I told him everything that Voldemort was saying to me. And he was like, well, you know, your reputation now precedes you of, of some things. And I tried explaining the danger I felt in my home to Pastor Jay in this way of like, I speak in metaphors a lot. I don't know if that's come through. <laughs> Just a little um, bit. <laughs> but I, I tried describing it to Pastor Jay of like, he loads the dishwasher with the knives facing up. And I said, that's how I felt living with him. If like, I could reach into the dishwasher and be sliced wide open. And he didn't get it. And I was like, I didn't know how else to explain it of like, I'm in danger living with this person. Right. And so we ask him to, to move out. He doesn't take it well. So he then has a bunch of people over like the following night and I have to get up at 3 a.m. to go open the store, the open Starbucks. And I'm walking Buffy in our backyard for the night, her to go to the bathroom. We're going to go inside, go to bed. And like some of the friends were showing up trying to play with her, meet her. Like it's a puppy. Who doesn't want to play with a puppy? Like, come on. He then grabs me like by the shirt and like yanks me over and my dog's on her lead and she like gets choked and thrown back with us. And he looks at me and he goes, get the fuck inside. I don't want to see you out here. You fucking liar. And if I see you at this fucking fire, you're going to pay for it. And I instantly just start crying. I'm, I'm scared. I almost call work and I'm like, I can't come in. I don't want to leave my dog home. And then I'm like, I tell him, I'm like, I'm just going inside to go to bed. He then proceeds like an hour later to bring people inside. They're playing instruments, banging on the walls, singing at the top of their lungs. And he knows I have to be up at 3 a.m. I'm losing my mind. So then a week goes by. He's then sitting in our like, one of our living rooms in the house. 
And he looks at me across the room and he says, just so you know, I'm not leaving. You need me here. I'm good for you. And you don't realize it. And like I've said, I'm not a person who yells, who screams. Like, I will scream for fun. I will cheer you on at a sporting event or whatever. I will be the loudest person. But if I'm mad, I just get real quiet and cry. But this is the only time I've ever screamed at a person in anger. And I said to him, you have two and a half weeks at this point to get out or your stuff will be on the lawn. Like, it is not good for you to be here. I said to him, mathematically, I said, let's speak logically here. Mathematically, two out of three people in this house don't want you here. The odds are not in your favor. Goodbye. And he goes, see, your anger right now is just my proof that you need me here with you. And I just looked at him and I said, you want to bet? I said, you are mistreating me. You're mistreating my dog. You're mistreating our friend. You are using people against me. Literally in that moment, I feel like the Holy Spirit was like, here's the reality. Yeah. And you're saying it to him. Mm-hmm. And I said things like, your relationships have failed because you're a, not a nice person. Like you expect things of people that are not expected of anyone. And he he stopped me and he goes, just so you know, you're not saved. And I said, what? He goes, the scripture is very clear that other believers can judge the salvation of other believers. And I'm judging yours right now and you're not saved. And in my brain, I was like, well, then see you in hell because neither are you. I wanted to say that. (laughs) Didn't. Didn't say that. Probably should have. But, you know, he like moves out. A great friend moves in. And I never set foot in that church, that cult, again. Like, truly. Like, I ended up moving to Michigan for a year in, like, utter solitude. Just doing my job, praying, reading scripture, reading comic books and other books, and watching good movies, and being by myself, and just being for the first time in a long time. Rightfully so. I mean, you had every... You gave that church every reason. Well, you gave that church so many chances just to like come to come meet you, like not even halfway, like just a little bit, like 10 inches, right? 12 inch, whatever that analogy you want to throw out there. Yeah. And they didn't like they refused to see you, refused to even acknowledge you. In fact, they actually used who you were against you. Like they saw these good things about you and they said, we're going to use it against it because we don't think these are the right things that make a a good leader or even, you know, at some point, like you could even say a good Christian, which I don't even know what the hell that means too, to be a good Christian. I don't either. I just, I gave them every opportunity to prove themselves to themselves. They never stepped up to the plate when I needed them to. It just breaks my heart that there's that church exists and it exists to try to make a profit and disguise it as the name of Jesus and emotionally manipulates everyone that walks through that door. I think your story too really reminds me, Kyle, of like when we talk about, you used this earlier about the church says, we'll meet you where you're at. Like that's a big thing, right? That we don't even know what that means. Like you used the Good Samaritan story earlier, you talked about it, but like even in that story, like the Good Samaritan, 
like the person who ended up the good Samaritan who ended up helping the individual, he met the person where, where they were at. And he provided what that person needed at that very moment, no matter who, it, who, who, who it was, no matter anything, he threw it all out and said, I'm going to provide this person what they need. And like that to me, like this story is a lesson to like, we're not doing that because you're, you can't listen to your story and, and think as a Christian that in any way we met you close to where you needed us to meet you. We actually kept you at arm's length and told you, we don't even want to engage with you. In fact, you're not even good enough to engage with. And so like, I think like to me, like we have to rethink what the hell that statement even means and why we even use it. Because if we really do mean that, then we need to start asking really tough questions of ourselves if we're even doing that. Because I don't think we are. Yeah, I concur. Like, there's no way in which during my like three and a half years, maybe almost four, that anyone there in power or that I was serving alongside of ever met me where I was. I reached out more than anyone should to just keep getting. And that speaks to how much that the system of the SBC gaslights people into thinking that they're well taken care of is the fact that you should be reaching out to us for help. Like, yes, there is that give and take of like, if I need help, I should be able to ask for help. But if I've asked for help six, seven, eight, nine thousand goddamn times, and you never text me, just send me a, a text, that's on you for not stepping up to the plate and being the God-fearing person you say you are. Because if you can't meet a hurting person where they're at, and yes, mine was probably maybe a little more unique than what the church or really society even is still willing to talk about. Like, God, like, how can you say then you're, you're going to go across the ocean? And I'm just like really over, really, really over the church needing to be the arbiter of people's stories. Like, who the hell if you made that up, you still need to be met where you're at. It's like, what? But like, why do you need to be like, why? Why do you feel like you need to judge Kyle's story and decide whether it's true enough for you to care for him? What in us makes us want to decide the truth of a story and whether that makes someone worthy of care. That doesn't sound like Jesus. Uh, yeah, I don't, I can't, maybe I'm wrong in reading the different gospels, but I don't think Jesus ever asked someone in need, like, is this true? Are you really blind? Are you sure Did you've I really... been bleeding for years? <laughs> yeah. Were you really in adultery? Were you really there? You know, like he spoke to whitewashed tombs is what he did. He called them out. He didn't call out the people who were really in need and showing their need and showing their blood and their bruises and their scars and tears. He called out the people who were faking it. And I can look at this church and I'm picturing them in their, my mind and they are whitewashed tombs meandering about, knowing exactly when to cry so people believe them in their sermon, knowing exactly what tune to put their guitar at so that way the students who are exhausted at summer camp will cry. And it's sick. 
and I I think I t- I titled the the thing that I sent you guys like, and that's how Regina George died. My spirit and willingness to want to be in full time ministry was just crushed by that bus. And as I sat there in a back brace, in a hospital bed, not one of them that threw me under could admit that they did it and come see me. Not one. I want you to drop oh. some truth bombs before before we say goodbye. So the one that I would ask is, I think we always ask everybody this, and I really want to know from, from your perspective, you know, what would you say to others who have been through a similar experience that you went through or going through them, going through it right now? And then what would you say to the church as a whole and church leaders about how to engage with stories like yours? Yeah. To, to those, if you've listening to this and you've connected with something I've said, I love you. Jay and Jonna love you. So that's three people. That's probably three more than you thought when you started listening. And Jesus cares for you. And he's not looking at you saying, here's X, Y, and Z that's wrong with you. He is actually meeting you where you are at and sitting with you in the dirt, waiting for you to be ready to get up in your time, at your speed, at your pace. He's giving you the time and the room for you to grow. And he is not putting you on his agenda. He loves you and he's sitting there. And I know the three of us are probably sitting there with you because we wouldn't be making this podcast if we weren't willing to actually do it. (sighs) Tune change a bit. (laughs) To those that do these things to us, how dare you? How dare you sit in your hypocrisy and your lies and stand upon a stage week after week using the name of Jesus to berate and belittle and bully. So that way your wallet has something in it. You're a whitewashed tomb. Your insides are full of mold. But Jesus can heal you of that mold. You just first need to realize you're dirty. Go to therapy. Heck yeah. Goodness. Wow. Well, you're like a few years out. I want to just end with that because it's so freaking good. (laughs) But I want to give you an opportunity before we end to just say like, what are things that have helped you? Where are you at now? Clearly, a lot of like awakening has happened in general in your life. Like, yeah, you've you've done some healing. (laughs) You're... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what? Where are you at today? And is there any resources that you want us to share? Yeah. So I guess for me, resources were like, I mean, I, I found a counselor and I went to therapy. So that's always everyone's starting point and jumping off point should be to find a good therapist. Um, but for me, what I came to discover was that I needed a place where I can really be allowed, I think, to, not I think, I know, to experience and delve into the emotions that that I felt like I wasn't allowed to have. Because I think as spiritual abuse survivors, I think in those, in those moments of the abuse, you think you're not allowed to be angry because it's your pastor or it's your spiritual leader. You're not allowed to be upset 
they're just doing what God told them to do. And I've found myself in that a lot of directing all the anger back at me for thinking I was doing something wrong, and which I wasn't. They were. And so I found the power of a good story, whether they were, you know, true, like I was re- uh, reading someone's book, like an autobiography or something like that, or a work of fiction. But I want to tell people and help people just dive into stories that will allow you and bring out the anger because you're allowed to be angry. Bring out the sadness because you're allowed to be sad. You went through something traumatic, so grieve, grieve for your loss. And so I have a couple like books that I really, really loved and held on to. The first one is called Lament for a Son. It's written by this man named Nicholas Walterstorff. And it's just a short book ab- about him writing through his grief process of losing one of his kids. And he's a Christian. He's a man of faith. And it was written back in the 80s. So some of it's a little dated, it feels like. But his heart and his passion. And in in the book, he'll question God openly of like, why are you making me feel this way? And it really helped me delve into my own grief for for having to lose people who I thought were family that weren't. Now, no one died. There wasn't any sort of physical death, but it this this separation, this almost just just like knife through my my spirit of these people aren't safe. I can't speak to these people anymore. While that boundary is a good thing, there's still that grief to be had. Another book that I really, really loved is just called A Monster Calls. And it's this book, it's really written for for kids, and it's a book for children to help them understand what grief is, what death is, what anger is. So if you're listening to this and you've gone through spiritual abuse and left a church and you have children in your family, like it's a really beautiful book to sit down and read together. But I could go on and on about hundreds of books that I've read, but if you're not a reader, let movies take you there. Let movies... Turn it on and let it absorb your spirit. Cry with the characters. Get angry with those characters. Like that is such a beautiful thing about storytelling. And so that would be my my recommendation is to find books, find movies, let fiction take over your world so you can experience the emotions the church was telling you you should not be experiencing, that your abusers wouldn't let you have. Because once you're through that river of just tears and anger and frustration, confusing, actual joy will be had. The best book, though, to read is Dune. (laughs) (laughs) Not just because it's an amazing book. And watch the movie. And the movie. The entire book is about the destruction that is the religious system and how terrible that religious system is when it uses what it believes in for bad things. And that includes colonialism, like being racist, being a misogynist, all those things that that this podcast brings out and people talk about that happen to them at church. Dune, that book is all about all those things. So I can't recommend that enough if you're just frustrated with your church experience. If you're listening to this and you're you're like, I I haven't actually experienced spiritual abuse, read Dune because it'll help you put words and emotions to the frustration you might be feeling in your church. Really surround yourself in stories because 
as a spiritual abuse survivor in those times, you were told that your emotions were wrong. You were told what you were feeling was incorrect. You were probably told something along the lines of like, I didn't mean to make you feel that way, but you still felt that way. And let stories open those wounds up so that way they can be felt, acknowledged, and then healed. Okay. I'd also like to spend some time, because we talked about a lot today. I want to give you an opportunity to share anything else you'd like to share about your story or um, if you'd like to say anything to people in similar situations, more about that. Just a chance for you to expand on anything else within your story. I think to men listening or those who identify as men listening, you're not a weak man if you admit to being a victim. There is true strength to be found in those who can hold their head up and say, I was hurt. And and there's no shame in that. There's no shame in admitting having been hurt and needing help. I just really need to, I need to say that to, to the men and those identifying as men listening. And to the, my LGBTQ family, God loves you. And there's a whole slew of resources out there for you to find a church, to be loved by the church, to know that you are not wrong. You are not a mistake and that God loves you. And you're not alone. You're not alone. To everyone listening to this who's, who's either in the throes of the abuse or on the other side or figuring out how to get to the other side, let this podcast be a ship in the night for you to wave down and climb aboard. Because we've all been run over. We've all been left out to sea. But collectively, we can build back a home and a safe space worth having where truly there is no shame to be had because Jesus died for it. And the devil found me. In my sleep, I waited there, running nowhere. Unprotected, undefended, shadowed by the cross. So young. Well, good morning, Cathedral. You watched my heart crumble in service yesterday. Now on my knees, I crawl in the shallow hall, begging for mercy today. In my sleep, they come, ravagers like you, tearing at my clothes. Oh, you all waited and baited me and watched it all. I'm just so young, too young for this mess. But now my body is older than my heart. Yet maybe someday a grace will come. That was a poem written by Kyle during his time in his former church. What he experienced there was heartbreaking. Over the course of learning about Kyle, we saw a man with a passion for authenticity and depth and beauty who was broken and left defeated. But his story does not end there. 
Bit by bit, we watched hope ignite into a flame that in turn encouraged us to remember why we share these stories. He blossomed as he reclaimed his story and agency. Kyle, thank you for holding hope when we ourselves struggled to carry it. And thank you for honoring us with your story. For Jay Coyle, I'm Jonna Harris, and this has been the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast.